I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Neil Blumenthal, the co-founder of Warby Parker, an online eyeglass retailer that sells vintage-inspired glasses for $95. For each pair of glasses sold, Warby Parker provides a pair of glasses to low-income people in more than 36 countries. Neil co-founded the company in February 2010 with three other classmates from Wharton Business School. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the details of the company, I'd like for you to walk me through the current landscape of the optical industry. What does it look like? Uh, So right now, typically, one walks into an optical shop, they bring a prescription, and they spend several hundred dollars on a pair of glasses. My co-founder, right before we launched, uh, he actually had spent $700 on a pair of glasses and had forgotten them in an airplane and just couldn't justify spending $700 again to replace them while he was a full-time graduate student. So when we look at the industry, we see that it's dominated by one company in particular. Uh, It's a publicly traded company called Luxottica. They do about a billion dollars, eight billion dollars a year in revenue. Uh, They're vertically integrated. They've uh, outright acquired Oakley, Ray-Ban, Oliver Peoples, Persol, and Arnett. Uh, They license all the major fashion brands, Ralph Lauren, Chanel, Prada, you name it. Uh, They then uh, have systematically bought up all of the retail chains. So they own Lens Crafters, Pearl Vision, Sunglass Hut, Sears Optical, and Target Optical. And then the icing on the cake is they own the second largest vision insurance plan in the country, IMED, um, that also major health plans like Aetna use as as their vision plan. So uh, typically, if if you were to go into a lens crafters, you might see 40 different brands of glasses. They're all designed by the same people, manufactured in the same uh, factories, uh, and you might pay for that pair of glasses with your vision insurance, and it's all owned by one company. Are there any antitrust issues that have come up? Why isn't there more antitrust legislation surrounding them? Yeah, I'm not a sort of an expert on monopolies, but uh, I know that there was some attention sort of given by sort of the FTC and the and the Justice Department when they were acquiring Sunglass Hut, when the Justice Department was looking at uh, sort of the number of retail outlets that sell glasses. They were including pharmacies that sell like over-the-counter reading glasses and sunglasses, and when you include uh, th- those sort of outlets, you know there are thousands of them. Right, Luxottica only has a small percent. Now, you're wearing Warby Parker glasses. Uh, You don't brand your glasses. There's Warby Parker on the inside. Why did you make that decision? Uh, We think that glasses are a reflection of one's personality, uh, and one of our core values is to treat others the way that we want to be treated. And when we were thinking about what glasses we wanted to wear, we didn't want to be a walking billboard for uh, for another company, right? We want to be walking billboards of ourselves. (laughs) Mm. Um, And then we actually did a bunch of research. Uh, At the time, we were at Wharton. We had 800 classmates, so we would just uh, hit them with survey after survey after survey. Survey, and we found that overwhelmingly yeah, people didn't want an external logo. Um, and especially when you looked at people that had worked in the creative space, uh, those people were even vehemently against having sort of external branding. And those are the, are the folks that tend to dictate what's cool mm-hmm. and uh, are the early adopters. So we really want to take them into consideration when we were designing our first collection. 
Prior to starting Warby Parker, uh, you were a director at VisionSpring, which is a nonprofit organization founded by optometrist Dr. Jordan Casalo, and their purpose is to also provide low-cost uh, glasses to low-income populations. What were you doing for them? Uh, so I was running all of their operations and programs. So uh, I worked on the pilot program down in El Salvador, basically sort of wrote the manual uh, for how do you train low-income men and women in the developing world to start their own businesses, giving eye exams and selling glasses in their communities. Uh, expanded the program to 10 different countries, uh, started to design glasses for people living on less than $4 a day, and then going to Asia to manufacture them. Vision Spring has something called a mobile unit. Can you describe that briefly? There are hundreds of millions of people that don't have access to glasses, and what that means is that uh, generally there aren't people in those communities giving eye exams and selling glasses. So the question is, how do you reach them, especially in like rural India? So uh, Vision Spring innovated and came up with this idea to uh, take a van packed with uh, people that could do a refraction and, and glasses and lenses and would literally sort of set up uh, almost like a soup kitchen for, for glasses and, you know, make announcements and people would line up. They come, they get their eyes checked. If they need a pair of glasses, they can buy them on the spot, often for just a few dollars. So even people that are living on less than $4 a day can afford it. And when someone's paying for something, they value it. They're going to use it. You're you're treating them with dignity because they have the, the power to decide whether they want that pair of glasses or not. And we found that a pair of, just a simple pair of reading glasses, for example, would increase someone's productivity 35% and their income by 20%. Now, just as uh, you empower people inherently by forcing them to buy the glasses rather than giving them the glasses, uh, you also allow them choice in you know the style of glasses that they wear, which is almost equally important to them. W- what were your findings there? At Vision Spring, we had a uh, saying that Jordan coined that vanity is not monopolized by the rich. People would really rather be blind than wear a pair of donated 1970s cat eyes. And it's because they'll be ridiculed by their friends and neighbors because ultimately glasses are a reflection of, of who you are. And fashion matters no matter where you live in the world. Uh, so when I was thinking about starting Warby Parker with a few friends, right, those lessons from serving people living on less than $4 a day were exactly the same, right? Glasses, while they have amazing sort of uh, health function, they're ultimately fashion accessories. You happen to wear eyeglasses. How long have you worn glasses? So that's the funny thing is that um, I really wear glasses as a fashion accessory. Do you have a prescription in your lenses right now, or are they completely uh, clear? They're completely clear, Ooh. but they are UV protected. <laughs> <laughs> now, you grew up in New York City. Uh, your mother was a nurse, and your dad was a tax lawyer, a, a partner at PricewaterhouseCoopers. What were some odd jobs that you had growing up in New York City? Well, it was funny. The I think my first entrepreneurial experience, I got sucked into one of those direct response TV ads for a food dehydrator and uh, begged my parents that I could spend $60 on a food dehydrator so that way I could make dried fruit and beef jerky. And all it was was a couple plastic trays, a heat coil, and a fan. And what you do is you basically take like grapes, you put it in there for three days, and then you get raisins. It ends up being more expensive to try and make them yourself. But my bright idea 
idea was to have a food stand on like Mercer Street <laughs> to sell dried fruit and beef jerky to New Yorkers. So this was in high school. And you went to Friends Seminary, which is a a Quaker high school in New York City, which has a real community focus. What impact do you think that uh, your your school had uh, on you, if any? I I think it had a tremendous impact. You know, one of the things that was just core to the curriculum there was community service. Our school and our gym would actually turn into sort of a a homeless shelter um, almost every evening. So if you were there late after school, you know, you'd see it and you'd actually help clean up. Uh, to prepare uh, for people that were coming in to spend the night. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Neil Blumenthal, co-founder of Warby Parker, a company that sells vintage-inspired glasses. For each pair of glasses sold, Warby Parker gives a pair of glasses to low-income populations internationally through nonprofit partners like Vision Spring. So fast forward to Wharton. You had three friends whom you co-founded the company with. And as you explained before, you had, you know, your classmates as focus groups. What other types of, uh, you know, helpful information did they give you? Well, an example was we were trying to build this great brand and we were trying to figure out how do we name it. Uh, It actually was the hardest thing that we did. It took us six months. We came up with over 2,000 different names. Uh, Finally, uh, we were really inspired by some early writings of Jack Kerouac um, and two characters in particular, Warby Pepper and Zag Parker, and we thought that we had something here. So we immediately put together a survey, blasted it out to uh, about 1,600 people because at Wharton there's 800 people per class, um, and uh, uh, the results were uh, amazing. Uh, first, we asked, you know, what is your gut reaction, sort of negative, neutral, or positive? Overwhelmingly, it was positive. And then it was, what are your sort of associations? And for the most part, uh, people didn't have any associations. So you have this blank canvas from which to work. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a few people that said Warburg Pincus, but we figured, <laughs> you know, it was a Wharton population, <laughs> a little focused on finance. One of your co-founders and co-CEOs, uh, David uh, Gilboa, had attended an exhibit at the New York Public Library of Jack Kerouac, which was the catalyst for the idea, right? Uh, absolutely. We had, you know, when, when we looked at folks that inspired us, uh, we often looked at literary figures because of the tie between vision and, and reading. So we took a lot of inspiration aesthetically from our grandparents that went to work in the 40s and 50s, uh, and then sort of the socially those of our parents that, you know, were coming of age in, in the 60s and were reading sort of Kerouac and Ginsburg and others. Uh, incidentally, one of your first marketing pr- uh, presentations was uh, this hush mob uh, at the New York Public Library. Explain that incident. We were trying to figure out what do we want to do for our fashion presentation, our, our first time that we were sort of in the scene and during Fashion Week. And what we decided to do was a guerrilla presentation at the New York Public Library. Uh, so we took about 30 models, put the them in hair and makeup at the Bryant Park Hotel about a block away, snuck them in one by one. We had a couple employees sort of stake out about six tables in the great reading room. And then we had 25 fashion editors come and meet us. We had sent them these letterpress invitations with these vellum reading lists and little library cards. And we said, shh, 
meet us on 42nd and 5th Avenue in front of the building with the stone lions on it because we didn't want to say the New York Public Library because we didn't really have permission. Mm. Um, And we brought them in and at 3.30 on the dot, uh, all of the models put on their glasses and then lifted up these books with these bright blue book covers on it with the frame name by Warby Parker. And it just created this amazing visual, this very different sort of fashion show. Now, the press has been a friend of yours from the beginning. Uh, you know, the, the first few weeks of your launch, you were in GQ and Vogue and, and Daily Candy. How have you had this love affair with the press? Like, is there one company or one person who really helped to push that forward? Uh, I, I always say that sort of PR is about 70% messages, 30% the messenger. So we've been trying to be very deliberate in thinking about what is interesting for people to report on, and then, of course, get the right messengers. So um, we, in, in sort of when we were launching the company, there was only three things we invested in, uh, our first collection, the website, and PR, knowing that you only have one shot to launch a lifestyle brand. Uh, and we just leveraged every personal connection possible. I mean, my wife, uh, Rachel, uh, has a contemporary jewelry line called Rachel Lee, and she used to work in PR at Yves Saint Laurent, so we really leveraged a bunch of her relationships. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Neil Blumenthal, co-founder of Warby Parker. We'll hear more from Neil coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Neil Blumenthal, the co-founder of Warby Parker, a company that sells vintage-inspired glasses. For each pair of glasses sold, Warby Parker gives a pair of glasses to low-income populations internationally through nonprofit partners like Vision Spring. Incidentally, uh, when you were at Vision Spring, you actually rebranded the organization. It used to be called the Skojo Foundation. How did that change in marketing and just branding impact what you carried over to uh, Warby Parker? Well, when when I was at Vision Spring and we were working on the rebranding, we worked with this uh, amazing creative group called What If, and we went through all these different exercises that I remembered that then when Jeff, Andy, Dave, and I were thinking about the brand architecture for Warby Parker that we went through. Uh, so an example would be, uh, what are you and what aren't you? So an example would be, Warby Parker is collegiate, but we're not preppy. And getting into those very specific nuances is really the essence of a brand. Think about um, what type of, if we were a car, what type of car we'd be. Um, If we were uh, a jeans company, what type of jeans would we be? Um, Thinking about different reference images. So one image that we kept coming back to was the blue-footed booby. Um, And, you know, I can't say it without laughing, and that was one of the reasons why we loved it, because who doesn't love a booby? Um, (laughs) What is a booby? (laughs) It's this uh, great sort of penguin-like bird that's found in the Galapagos. So for one thing, you kind of need to be knowledgeable and worldly to even know it exists. Um, Then uh, because it kind of looks like a penguin, it's sort of sharp and sophisticated and has like a tuxedo. Uh, But then when you pan down, you see these, it has these bright blue webbed feet. So it's got this uh, sort of unexpected sort of pop to it. Um, And then when you look at its face, almost all these photos of the blue-footed booby, it has this sort of quizzical, comical look on its face that's very curious. Mm. Um, and that's also sort of part of who we are. 
Just the name Blue-Footed Booby. Like, if it were called anything more serious... It, it wouldn't work. <laughs> you co-founded the company with three of your classmates, which, which can be kind of risky, starting a company with your friends, but you kind of had this pact early on of staying friends no matter what. And what were some concrete things that you put in place to, to ensure that? Yeah, it was... It's funny, I vividly remember that first night that we decided to move forward. We were sitting at a bar, and we basically promised each other two things. One was that we were going to work really hard, and the second that we were going to remain friends throughout the process. And we knew that there had been so many really smart people that had made similar pledges, but weren't able to keep them. So we thought, what could we do you know, systematically to sort of maintain these friendships and maintain a healthy working dynamic. And we created monthly 360 reviews where we'd go back to the same bar. Uh, the four of us would sit there. One person would be in the hot seat at a time and we'd say, hey, you're doing this well. Hey, this can be improved. Hey, when you shoot me a 10-page email at 2 in the morning, I want to kill you. Um, and it really helped any sort of issues to surface immediately and for us to resolve it and for us to just become, you know, a high-functioning team. You had 360 reviews uh, monthly. What were some issues that your partners had with you? Um, I think sometimes I'm known for immediately jumping into action and maybe not thinking things through as much as uh, my, my three other co-founders. So sometimes it's, hey, Neil, slow it down a bit. Um, so. And does your wife say the same thing? <laughs> sometimes, definitely. Mm. <laughs> I, I tend to plan trips and then not really pack for them. <laughs> <laughs> now, David Gilboa, uh, incidentally, in addition to being one of the co-founders and the co-CEO, um, he's also the fastest marathon runner who has run in a flamingo costume. And he's hiked across Antarctica. Indeed, one of our core values is to inject fun and quirkiness into everything that we do. So we take Halloween very seriously. Every year, we decorate the office for a week, and we have everybody dress up and come to the office in full costume on a day that's not Halloween, so it makes for some pretty awkward subway rides. What have you been? Um, last year, I was Annie little orphan Annie. And it was a little awkward. We had about 15 MIT students visiting that day, and I was giving a talk to them in this really small skirt. <laughs> Did you sing? Uh, I didn't sing, but I'm hoping that it was memorable. <laughs> The four founders worked together uh, as equal partners since inception and while you were still at, at Wharton. And then upon graduation in spring 2010, you and David Gilboa became co-CEO. Why do you think that that was necessary? You know, I think it would have been weird to have a reporting relationship between the two of us, regardless of who was going to be as superior and who was going to be the subordinate. And I think the other thing is that our skill sets complemented each other pretty well. Um, so we were able to do it in an organized fashion. So we sort of split the business up into about 12 different departments, six roll up into me, six roll up into Dave. Ultimately, we have created mechanisms in case there is a disagreement. You know, for one thing, we each have the final say in our area of responsibility, um, and then we, you know, work closely with our board on sort of major strategic issues. Since it's still a private company, you, you could do whatever you want, as uh, you know, until yeah, <laughs> until we have activist shareholders. Okay. <laughs> In the early days, um, you when you launched, uh, to your surprise, orders vastly outpaced your your inventory. How did you respond to that imbalance? 
Yeah, you know, we went from this moment where it was like, oh, oh my God, our idea is actually working to, oh crap, we're not going to be able to serve our customers. And, and the whole idea was to provide access, right? And within 48 hours, we had to shut down our home try-on program. Within three weeks, we hit our first year sales targets. Within four weeks, sold out of our top 15 styles. Um, so we uh, immediately had to just come out and sort of tell our customers, hey, we're really sorry. You know, we we didn't expect there to be this much of a response. We're going to do everything possible to sort of get more inventory faster, uh, but we're not going to take your credit card just now and we're not going to charge you. You took out loans from, from the bank uh, shortly thereafter. How much capital did you have in those early days? So we, the four of us invested our life savings in the company. It was under $150,000. Um, and then we ended up getting a $200,000 term loan that was backed by the Small Business Administration. Uh, that was difficult to get. Um, took us about 14 banks, uh, even though every loan officer we saw said, wow, you know, this is really impressive business plan. You have all this traction. Uh, our hands are tied. We can't make loans to companies that haven't been around for at least two years and have two years of tax returns. And this was coming off the heels of the 2008 financial crisis, where uh, a lot of banks had to quickly implement measures to sort of uh, rein in lending. Um, we ended up leveraging a, a, a personal relationship. One thing that was interesting was that we had to put up $100,000 of our own capital to secure this $200,000 loan, even though it was backed up to 90 percent by the federal government. And that was because the bank said, listen, at the end of the day, if you don't pay, um, it's too much of a headache to try and get the federal government to reimburse us, mm -hmm. um, which uh, was a little upsetting knowing just I think that the SBA is a great thing, um, but just how can we sort of streamline it to make sure that's functioning as it should. Did you also raise capital from friends and family? Uh, no venture, right? Um, at that point, no. It was about 18 months after we launched that we did our first equity raise and that uh, we had a mix of friends and family, of um, angel funds, and then actually individuals from the fashion and entertainment worlds. So people like Ashton Kutcher, Ari Emanuel, the, the CEO of William Morris Endeavor, uh, Joel Horowitz, the former CEO and co-founder of Tommy Hilfiger, the family that owns Chanel. Uh, we really wanted sort of a diverse group that could help us build the next great lifestyle brand. Now, you also looked at Zappos as some type of inspiration for you, the, the shoe company uh, now owned by Amazon. W what are one or two examples of, of that? Um, from day one, it was how do we make buying glasses as easy as possible? So it's free shipping, free returns, hiring really talented people to sort of work in customer service and actually be in sort of like a call center. People think that it's crazy that we're managing sort of a call center in, in the middle of Soho um, using sort of graduates from top universities, uh, but we're finding that uh, A, they're able to deliver amazing customer experience, and this is a great marketing tool. When we measure customer satisfaction using Net Promoter Score, our score is a 91, which is higher than Apple and Zappos, um, and it ends up being a great sort of recruiting tool and a feeder to uh, all of our other departments. What has surprised you about uh, the company? Like, what, what has been harder for you than, than you thought? I don't know if we fully appreciated the technological challenges of sort of 
building a technology-enabled brand and somebody that sells primarily through e-commerce. So the four of us uh, that started the company aren't technical, and it took us a while to sort of hire engineers, software engineers, developers, coders. Uh, There's actually a, a real sort of lack of engineering talent um, in the U.S. right now. It's limiting our growth and it's limiting our ability to hire in other areas uh, because we just don't have enough technical talent. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Neil Blumenthal, the co-founder of Warby Parker, a company that sells vintage-inspired glasses. The company has a home try-on option where it will send you five glasses that you choose on the website to try on at home for free. Incidentally, we were talking about uh, Luxottica and you know just how the industry is controlled really by one or two companies. Uh, you are a, a David in comparison to this Goliath, but have you had any communication with them? Have they paid any attention to you? Yeah, we had a brief conversation with them, uh, I think it was almost a year ago or so. It's funny, we, we were meeting at their offices, and Dave and I told our team, if we're not back in two hours, <laughs> call the cops. Um, but no, it was a very open dialogue, sort of you know, wondering if there's an opportunity for us to work together. You know, I have a lot of respect for the business that they've built, and I think that they're always sort of looking at, hey, what are some companies in the eyewear industry that are doing interesting things? You're primarily an online company, though your face-to-face encounters with customers uh, have been pretty important for the growth of the company. And in a way, you're marrying e-commerce with bricks and mortar. Can you describe that dichotomy a little bit? So what we found was that when we were working out of our apartments in Philadelphia uh, while we were full-time students and we had run out of a bunch of inventory, people started calling us and saying, hey, I heard you're in Philadelphia. Can we come to your office? And we'd say, uh, you can come to my apartment. <laughs> and people would show up. I remember the first person was uh, a resident, and he came in with his scrubs, and we laid out the glasses on the dining room table, tried to make the apartment look as nice <laughs> as possible. And we thought it was going to be this really suboptimal experience, but figured, what the hell, you know, we'll give it a shot. And it ended up being a really special experience because for the customer, they got a chance to meet the people behind the brand, which is so rare these days. And um, this particular person went on to be one of our biggest advocates. Uh, So when we moved back to New York and we set up our office, we made sure to make sure that our first office was in Union Square that was easily uh, accessible by Subway, um, that it was Southern facing and had light coming in. And we had a small showroom uh, to the point where people just started coming in and we got into huge fights with our landlord because they're like you can't be running a store out of here this is a commercial space this is, should be an office and the elevator broke and it was a big disaster <laughs> now we've since moved to the puck building on house in lafayette where on the fifth floor we have a 600 square foot showroom last month we did over two hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of sales um, when you look at it on a sales per square foot basis mm-hmm. right that's approaching levels of tiffany's and Apple, which, you know, it's crazy when you think about we're selling a $95 pair of glasses, you know, on the fifth floor of a non-retail building. When you first launched the company, you were out of uh, your your apartments in Pennsylvania and you moved to New York. You then used your wife's office as the Warby Parker headquarters. How, how was that? Uh, it was funny. We were all scrunched into sort of the back of her office, which was right in the fashion district on 38th Street. And it was the summer and it was just so hot and her air conditioned 
air conditioning units were positioned towards the front. So the first thing that we had to do was buy a fan. Um, and then uh, sometimes customers would come into the office and, you know, you talk about being confused, right? It, it's it's an office building. The name on the door says Rachel Lee, not Warby Parker. And then you have to go to the back of the office to, to try on glasses and you see all these people huddled around on laptops. I want to go back to the partnership with Vision Spring. Um, what are some stories or you know memories that you have of individuals whom you've helped, whether it was in El Salvador or India? So um, I was recently in India, and I met a carpenter. And this was a carpenter who um, sort of had sort of the biggest uh, wood shop in in the neighborhood, and made sort of beautiful furniture, pretty ornate. And his business started to suffer uh, basically over the last couple of years as he was having trouble seeing, and he started to basically have to outsource the sort of the most value add work. And you know. All, all that he needed was a simple pair of over-the-counter reading glasses. Um, so when Vision Spring visited the, his town, he was able to sort of buy those glasses. Um, and literally within a few days, his business was back up to where it was a few few years previously. Um, and it's just, you know, there's story after story about that. I can't tell you how many times I've walked into uh, a town that might be like a weaving community. And... I'll sit in front of like 20 women and, and I'll ask them, who has trouble seeing and nobody will raise their hand? And then I'll say, well, who has trouble threading a needle? And everybody will raise their hand. So often we had to link uh, sort of activities to vision and sort of prove that, hey, glasses are, are sort of the solution here. Anything else? Yeah. I, you know, one of the other things is sort of how do you market to people living on less than $4 a day in these communities? You know, we sometimes get crazy questions like, oh, when does the medicine run out when we're talking about glasses? One of the other things that we'd find is that um, early on we learned that you need to build up credibility for the people that we're training over time because because we're training people from these communities where they've sort of grown up and gone to school with their neighbors over their entire lifetime. For them to sort of come back after a couple of days training and say, hey, I can give eye exams and sell glasses, it's just outside of the realm of believability. So we had to create posters that said, you know, like vision entrepreneur in training mm-hmm. um, and give people sort of lab coats and ID cards and certificates of training so that way they could sort of prove to their friends and family that, hey, they had gone through this rigorous training. They do have the capacity to, you know, give these eye exams and sell glasses. Pretty universal. Absolutely. Your wife is a jewelry designer. Uh, What impact, if any, did she have aesthetically on the brand or on the glasses? So there pretty much isn't a pair of glasses that we design that she doesn't sort of give an opinion on. Um, I think we do follow her opinions almost all the time. <laughs> so it's great to have sort of a, a, another person with uh, a great aesthetic for us to sort of turn to. She has a great glasses face and almost any pair of glasses sort of looks good on her. So we're able to always throw on uh, different uh, uh, glasses on her to see if, you know, if we think it's going to work. I know what you mean when you say she has a great glasses face. Some people wear glasses well and others just doesn't work. Yeah, kind of like, like caps, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Some guys can handle caps, baseball caps, right. and others just, you know, keep it off. As like Matt Lauer. The host of the Today Show. He 
was a eyeglass model for a while. Huh. And what was pretty neat was uh, when we were on the Today Show, he was basically, every pair of glasses looked great on him. He even played with our monocle. And <laughs> <laughs> monocles even looked good on Matt Lauer. Since you're so focused on the face and on eyeglasses in particular, really for the last decade, do you notice yourself, uh, you know, recognizing things or noticing details that you might not have otherwise prior? I think my wife yells at me for looking in the mirror for too long, but <laughs> no, I can't walk down the street without staring people down if they're wearing eyeglasses or sunglasses and to the point where they probably think, who is this weirdo staring at me? <laughs> are you trying to figure out, are those are those my glasses or what are you, what are you looking at? Well, those are, that's generally easy to do. And I remember the first time that I saw somebody wearing our glasses, it was at the Union Square train station. This gentleman was on the platform and he sort of walked by me and I kind of like was following with him and he's kind of looking back like, who's this weirdo? Is he going to push me off the platform? But no, I just wanted to see our first sort of customer in the wild, so to speak. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. My guest has been Neil Blumenthal, co-founder of Warby Parker. Coming up, we'll meet Cause Marte, founder of Conbody, an exercise program that Cause developed while he was in prison for selling drugs. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. 